0: Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to our next live event. Um, just a bit of housekeeping before I introduce our guest. Um, on, on the top uh, corner, you will see a question and answer. If you have any questions, please feel free, feel free through, throughout just to type them in, and we'll we'll try to get to as many as we can uh, at the end. Um, and if we don't get to yours, don't worry. We'll we'll get the question answered, and we'll we'll send you a note afterwards. So. Obviously, uh, we're trying to be in communication with you all. Markets have been quite difficult. A lot of things going on, a lot of headlines. We want to make sure that we're, we're getting in front of you so that you can hear from our experts and who we're talking to. And we're lucky enough to have Angelo Castoros with us. I had the opportunity uh, to meet with him a couple of weeks ago out in Montreal. Um, great session. And so we're looking forward to a, a good session and overview. Uh, Angelo is a featured speaker at many conferences throughout North America. And abroad, he's frequently asked to to speak on the the subject matter or expert of, around geopolitical events and obviously uh we're in an environment we were so used to open borders globalization and uh we find ourselves in a very different situation where everybody seems more about borders and uh, constraints and and tensions between different countries so uh angelo you're being kept very busy i'm sure these days uh so thank you uh for for joining us and angelo i will turn it over to you
1: Thank you very much, everybody. Everybody, as, as, I, as, as they mentioned, I'm a geopolitical analyst at National Bank, and what I'm going to be discussing, as we'll see on the next slide here, will be number number one, discuss the, the war in Ukraine, what its impacts on Europe Europe's geopolitical landscape is. Number two, how China's U.S. relations continue to worsen, and I also be focusing on some of the the challenges related to the to transitioning to green energy within within the United States and North America. And the double-edged sword with regards to natural gas exports on an international basis. Now, I'll start with, the, with with Ukraine on the next slide here. Now, there's been a lot of questions whether there's hopes for peace negotiated somewhere in the near term. Unfortunately, when you look at it right now for the time being, it's hard to be optimistic because if you're the Ukrainians, you want to gain as much territory as you can before the winter approaches and you think you'll be in a better negotiating position if and when these negotiations were to turn out. If you're the Russians right now and you lost a lot of territory, starting negotiations now would be like admitting you lost a lot of territory. And the fact you're going to have these illegal annexations coming up in the next few days makes it even more complicated, right? There's there's also the the, the dynamic that ironically the the better that Ukraine soldiers do on the ground the worse it can be sometimes for Ukraine because if you if you if you can't rely on your soldiers i.e. Russia what do you do you do mass bombings of the cities you knock out the electricity you knock out the dams you knock out the water supplies and there's only one thing worse than 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 actually doing than doing that right now it would be doing it when it's minus 30 Right, and Russia is also looking to weaponize winter. Right, they're going to try to put pressure on you on Europe to, to be less supportive of Ukraine. They're going to put more pressure on Ukraine itself through the attacks on the infrastructure. It'll be much more challenging for Ukraine to get access to fuels for to, to, to you know to to fuel its war machine. Right, and so you you have you have these dynamics playing out. Where I think at least until winter, I would I don't see a, a you know much of a chance of even indirect talks. Right, because winter is a you know, a a way for Russia to weaponize, right? And I also think it's important to take into account that even if the war (laughs) was to end tomorrow and we would, of course, get a relief rally in the markets, I think it's important to realize that the suspicions between the two sides would continue for years, if not decades. Europe would still try to disconnect itself from Russia because they don't trust them. Russia would do the same by trying to rejig its infrastructure to be connected to China, for example, for natural gas, right? And these things can last a very long time going forward. Now, if I go to the next slide here, this is just a bit of an an example of what we have in mind for Russia trying to weaponize winter. This is a poll taken back in May when you asked Europeans, are you, are you you spending more time on Ukraine or worrying about their own country people? Well in this poll back in May 40% people said look you're spending a bit too much time on Ukraine not enough on us so you know one could imagine as winter approaches and the and the pressure and economic and energy related pressures increase this this type of pressure well, you know on, on, among the the western population could increase in the governments to you know push for push for a peace deal or or give Russia some negotiating leverage right and so I think that's why I, for the winter I don't see any progress on talks at all because it's it's they're looking to weaponize it. And if you look back at Russian history, whether it's Napoleon or the or, the, or you know Hitler, Wittner's being used as a weapon. This is not the same, but it's there's there's a connection to that. Now, if we go to the next slide here, <clears throat> this slide here just shows basically how much more Europe is paying for natural gas than North America. And you could have the same slide, by the way, for electricity, where it's several multiples higher. Now, it's important to realize, in a world that's becoming increasingly automated, okay, electricity is the new labor in terms of analyzing who's, you know, what region or company is the most competitive. That means that what I recommend, when you look at things from an investment perspective, when you're doing due diligence, one of the things you look at is the, is the energy cost that companies or regions are paying right? Because this is going to be very important in defining their competitiveness, especially in a world that's becoming more and more automated. Now I'll, find, now I'll jump here to the to the next slide. Now, this this map here of, 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 Europe, of Europe's energy infrastructure with relation to natural gas really highlights the challenges because a lot of these pipes have been built over decades going into Europe, okay? Now, when it comes to Europe, they, they not only have the challenge of trying to find new oil and gas supplies, they have to rejig their energy infrastructure. They have to build new pipes going into Europe. They have to build new storage facilities, new LNG terminals. This is going to take a very, very long time. So, and this is a challenge for Europe, because on the one hand, they're going to try to encourage a lot of these companies to develop infrastructure. But on the other hand, Europe has been telling us that, you know, in 10 years, we're not going to use natural gas. So if you're a company and you're going to say, okay, I'm going to spend five years building it, 10 years to 15 years to get my money back but you're telling us we're not gonna use natural gas in 10 years, what am I gonna do? I think that what's gonna to have to happen is Europe's gonna to have to financially compensate these companies if, if, they, if their assets do become stranded. This is gonna be very expensive, but it's a lot less expensive than a multi-year energy crisis. When you also look at this map, you see the the you know the opportunity from an infrastructure perspective, because you're gonna to have to invest a lot of money into in into equipment and infrastructure. And, but I would say I would avoid for example the utilities because the utilities now when you they've been they've been given price caps, government interventions, government takeovers and as what and as what any political analyst will tell you there's no such thing as a temporary price subsidy or temporary price cap once these things get put in place they tend to last decades right so it's something where you in this sector you focus on the equipment providers they can sell the equipment and and wash their hands of the regulatory and political risk of having to raise prices and deal with the political backlash for example now I'll, take, I'll take you to the next slide here. The next slide here is, is also very important because it focuses on what I call the risk of deindustrialization. The chart here on the left shows that aluminum production has been declining literally every month for the last several months, and you could have the same chart for for fertilizers, for smelters, and the question is how much of this is going to be temporary and how much of this is going to be permanent in Europe. And I think there's going to be a significant chance a lot of this is going to permanently migrate to other parts of the of the, of the world. The picture on the right hand side shows us, you know, Mittal's steel operations, cutting operations in Europe, but increasing them in North America, for example, right? And you're seeing Tesla, you know, delaying their, their, their decision to, to, to build a factory in Europe, you know, and focusing more perhaps on North America. And this means when you look at Europe, from an investment perspective I would focus on those companies that I say that, that I call European and name only those 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 companies that not only export abroad but have a, a lot of their production abroad so they're 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 cushioned from the impact of these very high energy prices that are going to take a long time to deal with right and so it's a way to if you look at Europe you look at those companies that are abroad so kind of it kind of you you do a re you, you reanalyze that asset allocation, right? Where you you might not like the region, but you might like some of these companies that are deconnected. So for example, when you look at Toyota, is Toyota really Japanese, it exports a lot abroad and a lot of its productions abroad, right? And so it's a way to take some of these the companies from this region that are perhaps deconnected from its primary weakness, i.e. high energy costs. Now I'll take you now to the next slide here. This is an important slide because when we look at Europe's energy challenges, we tend to focus a lot on natural gas, dependence on Russia. But this is a this is a slide showing how much France is importing electricity right now. And this is important because France has traditionally been a major electricity exporter to Europe. Right now, about half of France's nuclear reactors are offline because of maintenance, because of extreme weather events. Now, France has promised that they're going to get these reactors online in the next three or four months. But anybody who's familiar with the nuclear sector, particularly in the Western world, I, I actually can't name the last time I remember a, a nuclear reactor that, or that's been repaired or built on time. They, used, they usually tend to be months or years behind schedule. And so, for me, if, if France is not able to get these reactors online, it, it risks making a bad situation even worse on the energy front in Europe. So it's one of these countries I'm taking, you know, I'm, I'm taking a look at. And, they're complicated by the fact that for many years we we told people in France and, in and with the West in general that the nuclear sector was in decline, right? And so people went to get educated elsewhere. Now they're searching for nuclear engineers. The average age is seventy. Welders, right? They can't find them. So, and and don't forget also once even if you say that you're going to go nuclear once you've shut something down and actually closed it it can take 15 to 20 years to build right the time it's finished I'll be doing this presentation from an old age home right and so that once you've shut these things down it's very hard to you know to go back so that keeping an eye on France and whether they get these reactors online is something to you know to that will help me decide whether the the energy crisis goes from bad to worse now i'll take you here to the next slide the next slide is, is it's interesting because what I, I call it the irony of ironies, because anybody who's familiar with the European crisis back in 2008, <clears throat> Germany was the strong country lecturing the very indebted countries in the South, saying, you know, you guys are responsible. You got, we don't want to socialize the debts. This time around, the positions are reversed from an energy front. So if you look at the map here, most of the LNG terminals are in, are in the, some of the most indebted countries, Spain and Portugal, and now they have the energy. And now you have some of the Spanish government ministers now lecturing, you know, Germany saying, unlike other countries, we weren't irresponsible from an energy point of view, right? And so this kind of switches the positions, right? Where, you know, you better keep buying our bonds or don't push us too hard in reforms because you need our gas, right? And so now Germany's asking for the gas supplies to be shared. And there's always the risk that if energy supplies become tight this winter, that countries like Spain will prioritize their own markets over that of other countries, right? Similar to what happened during COVID. If we all remember during COVID, what happened? Many countries hoarded equipment and supplies, right? So there's the same, there's the risk of the same dynamic playing out. Now, I'll take you here to the next slide. Now, this, this is a, a slide that's what I call a bit from the blast from the past, because back in 2014, the, this is the former leader of NATO, they warned Europe that, they 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 allege that Russia was financing anti-fracking groups in Europe in order to prevent Europe from becoming independent in natural gas production in order to remain dependent on Russia. Two years later, Germany, France, Netherlands all banned fracking. This is despite the fact Germany had been fracking since the 50s, right? And so it's just a, it's a kind of a warning that perhaps went unheeded, right? And so you know, ten years later, we're you know we're seeing some of the ramifications of this. Now I'll take you here to the next slide. Now, the next slide is what is the political discontent arising from these difficult times, right? And the first one is, the first example we're seeing in Europe is the election of a new government Italy on the far right of the political spectrum. Now, the first point that, that the first impact this could be is on is on Ukraine. Now, they've said they're gonna be more pro-Ukrainian, but there's a good chance they're gonna be less pro-Ukrainian than the prior government. So if you look at the quote on the second bullet, by one of the leaders of the, of the you know the coalition parties in that new government, he says, Yes, we want to defend Ukraine, but if the sanctions hurt us more than Russia, there's a problem. And Russia's counting on more and more people to have these kind of phrases or sentiments as the winter approaches. There's also there was also a kind of an indirect threat by the president of the European Commission, shown here on the third bullet, where she said, Look, if Italy doesn't go our way. You know, we have means to, you know, to sanction them or whatever, right? If they go in the wrong direction. The problem is, is that it's hard to really analyze in Europe who's following economic reforms or not, because most of these countries are more indebted than before. They're now nationalizing, they put in price price caps. And a lot of the stronger countries that were put that that would have been, you know, mean meaning more the countries putting in place discipline are not as strong as they once were. Right. And so this will be the challenge. Now with relation to some of the the recent events in UK where the pound collapsed and the bond yields jumped after they made those unfunded tax cuts from a political perspective for <clears throat> this is an example of me of where over the last 10 years or so politicians in the western world have become conditioned to, to spending more and not really worrying about a market reaction because rates were so low and, and there was no reaction to it so i you know and you know simply put you could put your hand on the oven and you wouldn't get burnt right and you could keep doing it and there was no reaction now they're finding out when you do put your hand on the oven you are getting burnt and the transition to to dealing with this new reality that many people politicians haven't dealt with for 10 years or so will be very difficult from a psychological perspective to make the transition right and this is going to be a challenge so and you know, just to put this in perspective, for example, in the UK after this, what the, the the main opposition Labour Party, which will probably win the election in a year or so, they came out you know criticizing the government in power, but offered, but then put in a plan to spend even more money, right? So it's going to be hard to break this dynamic. And the risk from a from, from if you're a political party, as I have always said, that the political party that's unlucky enough to be in power in any Western country when they're finally forced to cut deficits and debts. They're probably going to be, you know been the political penalty box for ten or fifteen years, right? It's going to be like a game of musical chairs, right? You're not going to be one sitting in that chair when and if this moment rise, because in the West, we've kind of forgotten how to make these difficult choices because rates were so were, were so you know so low for so long. But this will be a challenge that many politicians are going to be facing, right. And I think u k is a leading indicator of this. Now, <clears throat> just to kind of finish on the European section, when you look you know you when when you look at Europe and you compare it to say North America, our advantages are tremendous, okay? Europe's surrounded by many countries with political instability around it, not just you know in the east, but in the south as well. We're surrounded by oceans. Our energy costs, what I call the new labor in terms of defining competitivity, are much, much lower. We have the oil and gas reserves. We have farmland and water. We have mineral re- mineral resources. We just have to develop them. We as a country in Canada, the United States, we can move a lot quicker, because it's one country in Europe, they always have to get unanimity in many cases. And that's kind of like herding cats, right? And so when you look at all these factors in in this difficult global economic environment, you still see that North America has many strengths when you compare that to many other regions of the world. Now, I'll take you now here to the, the next slide here.
2: Sorry, Angelo, just before we go on to the sure. next slide, there is a question still about Russia and Europe. Did you want to pose the questions later or did you want to address them uh, right yeah. now when you're on? Sure, whatever you guys want to do. Does it, I a- can, I can. A- Amy, what do you think? Should we? Yeah, so the, the,
0: the question is, uh, this is a quick one so we, this sure. one you can address. Uh, so the obviously you have got a lot of Russian men fleeing the country right now and they're running to the neighboring countries do you see some sort of impact on those neighboring countries like what will the situation be unfolding by accepting
1: well you know what it's it, it's i'm not sure they'll be they'll be impacted directly because maybe they'll get pressure to re- repatriate them but i'm not i think russia has enough to deal with right now that they're probably not, they're just going to let it happen and be very angry but what it does for me is that it, it, it highlights there's probably more people fleeing than currently, currently fighting in the Ukrainian army in terms of, in terms of people. But it highlights the, the difficulty Russia's going to have in getting competent troops because the, even the ones that are going to show up in Ukraine, they're going to be there either for the money or the paycheck, right, as opposed to Ukrainians fighting for their, for their land, right? But there's a risk in this because, the wor- as I mentioned earlier, the worse these troops do, because they're not very motivated, the more the temptation to resort to mass bombing. Right. You know, in in terms of like damaging the infrastructure. So there, there it shows the weakness of Russia, but there's also an element of danger for Ukraine, because if your soldiers don't do very well, you rely on just, you know, using old Cold War era, you know, bombs to do the damage. But there will be tensions with some of these countries. But I think for the moment, Russia has enough on its, you know, enough uh, is occupied enough by Ukraine not to really say anything to them. Because could you imagine trying to enforce this or say to repatriate them all? Right? And will, they, will these countries refuse? Will they? Will they accept? Right? So I think they're going to focus a lot on just on Ukraine right now. Maybe deal with that further down as the years go by.
0: Thanks for that, Angelo.
1: Now I'll 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 go to the next slide as well now, the the next area I'm going to talk about is china u s. tensions. Now, we've kind of been a bit desensitized to tensions over the years because we've heard so many about u s. putting in you know sanctions on China and vice versa. But I think right now, we're entering into what I we're into unprecedented territory because, In the recent act that was passed, the Chips and Science Act, where basically the US decided to, you know, we provided subsidies to build semiconductors in the United States to the tune of $50 billion or so. There was a clause in this this legislation that said, if you take the money to build plants in the United States, you cannot build advanced semiconductors in China. This is something that we've never seen before, right? And so this will set a precedent for other sectors as well, whenever there's financing involved and it also sets the stage for even more restrict even more restrictions so for example in an earlier version of this bill there was a legislation that just got pulled out in the very last moment that would have had uh, that would have forced all companies investing abroad in countries of concern to go through a committee for approval okay and to put this in perspective that would have meant that if tesla wanted to build one more battery factory in china they would have had to get you know ask for permission and there's a good chance they wouldn't have got it now, I think in the next year or so, there's a good chance that this more restrictive legislation I just talked about has a chance of being passed. And this really, what this really means is that companies in the most strategic, you know, American and Chinese companies in the most strategic sectors, they're really gonna have to, they're gonna see their market share decline in each other's markets, right? And so if you take the semiconductors, 20 to 30% of the revenues come from China, they're gonna have to focus, you know, you American semiconductor companies gonna focus more on Western markets, they're going to have to focus more on subsidies to help them out as well and that's why i think when you look at the 50 billion dollars it looks like a lot but when it takes 15 billion dollars to build a semiconductor plant they're pro- there's that's not enough you're probably going to have to have a chips 2 act a chips 3 act right going forward and so you're going to see can supply chains continue to to you know to be shaped by geopolitical tensions and this means when you're analyzing companies particularly those in strategic sectors in addition to analyzing Revenue and profits. You're going to have to analyze whether the the geopolitical objectives of the of the country in question align with that country, with that company. If they don't, they're not going to get the contract, right? So it's an, it's it's a it's a it's some it's a way to look at it. So for example, what we Huawei had better 5G equipment, but because of politics, a lot of Western co- countries chose Nokia and Ericsson, right? So that's just one example among many. So that means when you're analyzing some of these sectors, you really look into the you know, the geopolitics of it to see who will get the contract in question. Now, I'll jump here to the to the next page. Now, I'll I'll skip this one as well. Now, this slide here goes a little bit to that difficulty of doing businesses in, you know, in both countries, right? Because we're at a point where if you're if you're an American company or a Western company in China, particularly in a strategic sector, if you follow U.S. rules, you're against Chinese rules and vice versa. So what do you do? You try to perhaps put your own supply chain in, you know, in, in China, so it's only for the, the the subsidiary in question. But that might not be enough, right? That, that might be at a point where some of these companies might have to abandon some of their or sell off some of their operations. And I'll just give you a few examples of the difficulty. So you look at Tesla, you know, Musk here or Tesla on the left hand side. Right now in China, the Tesla automobile is banned from several military installations and government buildings. And when high level leaders meet in certain cities, they ban the Tesla car as well because they claim that the sensors in the cars could be used to spy on them, right? Musk says, no, the data stays here. That's not possible. Some people say it's also China's positioning itself to get its local champions in this market. And then Musk is also getting pressure on the American side. There's legislation in in the Congress currently saying that if you're a company and you want to continue to have access to NASA contracts, you can't have too much exposure to China, right? So you're seeing a company like Tesla being pressured on both sides. Now, another company that's really been kind of hit, you know, or hit by both sides of this geopolitical rivalry is HSBC. HSBC, for those who are not aware, was the company that provided the documents that led to the arrest of the CFO of Huawei. Okay, now that got China very angry, needless to say. So in order to get back in China's good books, what did HSBC did? They supported the security law for Hong Kong. That got the West very angry, Right. And so right now, one of its largest shareholders, this company called Ping An, it's a large insurance company in China, they're saying split it up, East operations and Western operations. And you wouldn't do this without Chinese permission, right? And so you're seeing examples of this. And I think a few years, we're gonna see examples of companies that are perhaps gonna have to make a decision of what, what market they focus and what market they decide to neglect, right? Now I'll jump here, I'll skip this slide as well. Now, this, this, this next slide here is in relation to, to subsidies that are being provided to electric vehicles in the United States in recent legislation, so $7,500. Now, there's nothing um, new, new about this, but what's new about these subsidies is the local content requirements. Okay, Basically, starting in 2024, half of the minerals and half of the components that you know that are made in electric vehicles, in order to qualify for these subsidies, have to be either mined or assembled in North America or an allied country. Now, this basically raises two points. Okay, number one, the West has gone from basically you know trying to you know criticize countries in the developing world from having local content requirement rules to basically saying if you can't beat them, join them. So now China is going to have these rules, India has these rules, so is the United States, and so is Europe, and so will Japan. And this means that for, in terms of supply chains, in addition to having your supply chains reshaped by geopolitical tensions, they're going to be reshaped by the ever-growing local content requirements spreading all over the globe, right? So it's one more reason where, you know, you're going to have perhaps have higher operational costs because of that, because efficiency will take, a, you know, it will take a second, you know, second place in terms of the most the importance. Now, the second thing to look at is the deadlines, okay? When you look at these deadlines, they're very ambitious. But then when you realize, oh, so when you go to the next slide here, when you look at it, when you look at this, you're, you're saying to yourself, this is almost impossible for any country to meet these requirements. Because look at the top left-hand corner, America almost mines none of what they need, to, you know, f- for the green energy transition in terms of electric vehicles. China mines a lot more, and what they don't mine, they control a lot of the companies. And then when you go to the refineries in the top right-hand corner, America even refines less than Europe, which actually surprised me, right? And so. The United States is in a, in a bit of a dilemma, because on the one hand, if you move as quickly as you can to meet your green energy targets, you're going to go from being independent in oil and gas to being dependent on the supply chains based from your number one geopolitical adversary. If you take your time to build up your supply chains, which could take years, if not decades, you're going to miss your, your, energy, your, your green energy targets by an even wider margin than would have been the case. Right, so, and this will be a, a a big challenge, right? You know, a big dilemma going forward. Now, you'd say to yourself, we're going to try to rush permitting or get it done, and, and the, 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 the problem is that we're not seeing some, you know, we're not seeing per- mines being approved at a faster pace. So, if we go to the next the next slide here, you can see in the United States, despite this, you know, very ambitious local content requirement rule, we're seeing less and less mines being permitted. Right, being accepted. And I think the, ch- the challenge in the West is that we've had a, we, we've gone, you know, for many years, many people in the West have equated mining with environmental degradation, particularly the younger generation. And now we're turning around and telling them we need the mines to finance the, the you know, the green energy revolution, right? And so we're sending these contradictory messages. So it's going to be a challenge. Now, if you're having difficulty getting mines up and running in North America, who are you going to look to? What region? It's going to be Latin America. So if you go to the, the, the next slide here, Latin America has many of the, the, the minerals that are crucial for the green energy transition, right? And So if you take just copper, for example, Chile, Peru and Mexico account for 40% of the world's copper supplies. But the problem right now with South America is that a combination of new governments, political uncertainty, political unrest, regulatory uncertainty, potential for tax increases, you know, the rejigging of the approval process means you're slowing down the approval of these mines, right? And so, for example, in Chile alone, They've recently cancelled six mines because they want to redo the approval process. These mines will eventually go through. The long-term demand trends are too good, but you will have slowed it down by a few several years more than would be the case under different political circumstances. And this means that while the current global economy really is putting pressure on some of these commodities in the shorter term, when the economic cycle turns, there's a potential that we're setting ourselves up for due to political Resistance to getting mines up and running in the developing world, and challenges in Latin America for tighter supplies, you know, in some of these crucial commodities for the green energy transition over the longer term. Now, I'll take you here to the to the next slide. Now, this is just regarding Taiwan and 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 uh, tensions surrounding Taiwan. Now, this kind of this chart for me is it's it, it's what I consider to be two opposing geopolitical trends, because on the one hand, China's getting stronger militarily, economically, but on the other hand, as you can see from the right-hand side, China, Taiwan, Ty- the Taiwanese feel less and less Chinese every year, right? So these two trends are gonna crash into each other. And the question is, as you can see on the next slide, is, is whether, invasion is imminent. I don't think an invasion is imminent, you know, in the near term, but I think we're now in a new era where we're going to see much more aggressive military exercises. And ironically, the, the visit from Pelosi probably gave them a good excuse to practice, to practice an invasion, practice a blockade. I think both sides realize even a minor outbreak, you know, would really shock the economy, especially if you broke up the global supply chain. But I think there is the risk several years down the road that if China comes to the conclusion that there's no peaceful reunification, the risks increase significantly. And one of the things to keep an eye on is, is China's ability to build the most advanced semiconductors. For the moment, they can't. They have to import them all from Taiwan. So even during this tension, they never touched any of these these, these the supply chain with sanctions because they need them too much. If we see reports Taiwan and you know, China is making advancements in the most advanced semiconductors, there's more of a reason to be to be worried right so that's that's one of the things i'm keeping an eye on now if we go to the next slide if you look at you know chinese strategy just taking a page from the art of war the goal is is to basically tr- to win the fight without fighting because if you once you get involved in the fight the damage is tremendous even if you win and i think one of china's strategies would be a blockade Given that Taiwan imports 98% of its food and sixty eight percent 60 you know so 90% of its energy and 60% of its food, you could bring it to its knees in weeks, right? You cut the internet cables, for example. Maybe there's some sleeper cells in there of 10,000 people or so that would take over key installations in Taiwan as well. And the question would be, what would America do? Would they put in place financial sanctions? Would they put in place a counter blockade of China? But given the fact China accounts for 25% of the world's electronic and, and like electrical imports, it wouldn't, this would have more of an impact in the war in Ukraine by several multiples, right? And so it's, it, that, that that would be the challenge, right? What would America do to a blockade? And what would be the impact, right? And so, and I think it's important to take into account, Taiwan is literally 100 miles from China. It's what people drive to go to their cottage, right? It's It's just, you know, it's it's that close. And from the Chinese perspective, that you know, when the, when the civil war occurred in 1949, the nationalist side, the losing side, fled to Taiwan. And their view, Taiwan would have fell a day after they decided to attack it if America had intervened with you know with with the, with you know with 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 Navy ships, right? So they felt that natural progression of things was stopped, right? And so China has an obsession with this that perhaps in the West we don't fully appreciate. Now, if we go to the next slide, next slide here, sorry. You can see what I call the tyranny of distance because America's, you know, military installations are thousands and thousands of miles away and dispersed all over the world while China's are concentrated around Taiwan only 100 miles away. And it puts the U.S., if if hostilities were ever to break out, it puts in the U.S. in what I call the ultimate lose-lose <clears throat> situation, okay? If you do decide to defend Taiwan, if China was to attack, you, enter, you have the possibility of entering into a major war with a nuclear armed superpower. And you might have Americans wondering what you're doing fighting for an island 100 miles off the coast of mainland China. If you don't defend Taiwan, in the eyes of many countries in the world, particularly in Asia, there's a new global superpower in the region, right? And so it, from America's perspective, it's it almost seems like a lose-lose situation. Perhaps in 10 or 15 years, if America develops a strong semiconductor sector, especially on the advanced end, and Maybe they'll say it's not worth defending Taiwan because we've developed our, you know, we've developed our advanced semiconductor sector. But in the meantime, Taiwan really remains highly important. So it's a, it's an important region to keep an eye on going forward. Now I'll jump. I'll jump here to the next slide, and I'll pass this slide as well. Now this this is this this slide is focused on America's LNG exports. This is it shows how much LNG America's LNG exports have increased since 2015 to from literally zero to 13 or 14% of their production. Now, Biden has promised that they're gonna export as much as they can to to, to help Europe defend against, you know, to to, to replace, you know, Russian natural gas supplies. But from the political perspective, there's a challenge because the more the United States exports abroad, the more you connect natural gas to the global markets and the more prices rise in the United States just before the midterm elections, okay? Prices are much lower in the US than they are in Europe, of course, but they're also three times higher than they've been. And just before the war, you had many senators writing letters, including companies as well, that use lots of natural gas in the chemical sector, for example, saying, look, limit how much you sell, because the more you sell abroad, the more it becomes expensive for us, right? And this is a challenge that that America's going to be dealing with as the winter approaches spikes, if the price does spike for natural gas, because you get political pressure to limit it. Now, if you go to the next slide here, this is an example of, of countries that have dealt with this pressure. So you have Australia, who's recently said, look, prices are spiking in our country. We might want to limit the LNG exports. Norway did that. I was also mentioned this with relation to its hydroelectricity exports. And at the quote at the very bottom of the page, you had recently a bunch of Northeastern governors who wrote a letter saying, it's great that you're supporting Ukraine, Ukraine, Europe, but we could also use some of these LNG supplies as well, right? Could you please prioritize us? So the pressure will pick up if prices do increase, right? And I think for natural gas, it's important. You know, there, it's important to focus on it because I think it's going to get much more appreciation. Natural gas. There's great global demand for natural gas, but it's only part partially fungible on an international scale. Natural gas is crucial as a, you know, when the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow, as a backup. It's an it's crucial input for fertilizer, chemicals, aluminum production, right? So I think we're at a point where we we we've underappreciated for a very long time it's something to keep an eye on looking for you know from investor and a geopolitical perspective going forward now in the very last slide here this is just a quick overview on the US election <clears throat> for a while it looked like the republicans were going to have a red wave and then they you know then you then you know they did their best to to lose and try to or attempt to lose we had the trump controversies and the recent uh, you know ruling on the on the abortion issue but there, it still looks like they're going to they're they're they're, they're flip the House of Representatives. I think that's a, that's a near certainty, but it won't by, be as, by as big a margin as before. So we're going to have a divided government, and when you have a divided government, you govern by executive order. But, the, but, I, but there's one exception: if there's anything that has a China, like in a China you know, that's related to China, they, they both opposing sides tend to put tend to put down their weapons, pass it, and go back to hating each other. Okay, so anything with a China focus will pass. You could probably say the same for Russia as well, right? So I think that's from an investment perspective. You say, yeah, it's gridlock with the exception of China-related or Russia-related legislation. So that, in a nutshell, is my presentation. Thank you guys very much.
0: Thanks, Angelo. That was a real trip around the world uh, in 30 minutes. And... Uh, Boy, oh boy, how do you sleep at night with with all the stuff going on and all the unrest? It's, uh, and again, to your point, this is what our team has been talking about when we look at it from an investment perspective for our clients is it's another lens in which we have to review our individual investments of what makes sense in the portfolio. So being mindful of what's going on in the world from a geopolitical standpoint is, is more important than ever before. Um, Sean, I think you've got a few questions queued up.
2: Well, I have one, Angelo, and it's, it's kind of relates to what you're talking about in terms of uh, reallocating productive capacity around the world based on potential geopolitical forces. Apple announced that they're, they're now going to produce the iPhone 14 in India. And it's interesting, you know, I, I know you, you could touch on it. You didn't in this presentation, but what role does India play in the geopolitical forces that are, that are evolving around the world?
1: India is a crucial country which is seen which is seen as a crucial ge- uh, balancing counterbalance to China in the region. So there's two important things from a geopolitical perspective. America wouldn't dare for example sanction India for you know for contravening Russian sanctions. They're too important to get angry. From the economic perspective, you're going to see a lot of companies you know you know hedging their bets and moving some of this production to India right? And the challenge, you know, will be to get, you know, in India can have some problems with, pay, you know, with, with getting approvals and getting these things up and running at, you know, in a timely manner, but you're going to see India benefit from this, right? And so I think it's a country that will benefit from this politically and perhaps economically as the, as the, the geopolitical supply chains re, rejig themselves. And there's also a, a, a longer term trend that we saw in China, okay? There's many of these big countries, like they have to make this choice because the more you industrialize the less you can say you can stay independent in terms of food okay because you use land for the the, the factories you use land for the semiconductors to build the cell phones etc so in 2000 china imported about a five billion dollars worth of food and now they now they import 200 billion and as goes china will go india okay and so india is going to have to make that, that choice as well right which you, which you're you going to use you will have less farmland you have to use you know precious water supplies for the semiconductors or the phones as well so i think that's a long-term trend in many respects i think our most precious foreign currency reserves are not found in the central bank in ottawa i think over the longer term they're found in the, our farmland
2: interesting okay. okay and i think related to this angelo um you know and a question was kind of posed related to this question there, there, there is a, a trend i think afoot and correct me or wrong where U.S. companies and and Canadian companies are trying to onshore their manufacturing processes. In general, yeah. how, how long <clears> will <throat> that take to 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 come to fruition? Like for instance, if Tesla wanted to onshore their productive capacity from abroad to the United States, typically how long would that take, and and what kind of investment would would that take for them to achieve this? The the, the challenge
1: with, as you saw with from the, the the chart, we showed all the refining and things like that, is that bringing this stuff back and getting approval is a very time-consuming process. I think the International Energy Agency said that, for example, from, from the discovery of a copper reserves to actually getting them online is about 16 years, okay? I'm not saying, that, and it, so the, the, for example, the United States, they've been trying to get lithium plants up, you know, new lithium mines up and running, but there's been resistance. So some of the movements that have been against oil and gas are against, for example, the lithium mines as well, right? And this will be the, this will be the challenge, right? Getting social acceptance, right? you know, to get these mines up and running, right? And the, 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 I think we, in the West, we don't have an appreciation. Like, we've forgotten what, what it is to produce things, right? And, we, and you know, just even, for example, for medicine, you know, um, you, you take a blood thinner. Blood thinner, just a one kilogram blood thinner can require over, up to, you know, over 1,000 pig intestines, right? You know, these are things that require massive, you know, massive footprints to get them and running. And so the, building the refineries, there's going to be, there's resistance to that, right? And so that'll be the challenge. Right to getting the societal approval, and as I mentioned in the presentation, you know we many people in the West have you know equated mining with environmental degradation, but now we're telling them we need the mines for the green energy transition, and you know it does for many people that doesn't compute, right? It's like it seems like a contradiction, but it's gonna it'll be a challenge, right? I think that will be be a challenge going forward, trying to get these things up up and running in a timely manner and getting societal approval for them you know, even for rare earth mining, for example, just crucial for input. So, so that's going to be the, you know, th- that's the challenge, right, to, for this. Like there's one lithium mine in, uni- in, in, uh, in, North, in North America only, and they still have to send it back, right? And just to put it from a geopolitical perspective, the United States right now has some mi- rare earth mining, which is crucial for all alternative energy and IT products, but they have to send the the minerals back to China to get refined. So the American warships are relying on its number one adversary for the for the magnets needed for its ships to confront its adversary in the seas, right? It's not a very good place to be in. Right. And so I think this is another example of geopolitics getting into the getting, you know, analyzing geopolitics. When you sometimes some of these companies are too important to fail. In 2011, rare earth prices collapsed, right? We followed the, the capitalist principles and we let it collapse. China didn't, they subsidized it. They got they got to control the market, especially on the refining side. Mm-hmm. This time around, around if rare earth prices collapse, the United States or the Western countries, you can't afford to let these things go bankrupt. You have to support them financially, right? right? Because it's just too crucial for your national and economic security. So there's another investment wrinkle. What's too geopolitically important to fail? And i.e. semiconductors, i.e. these some of these rare earth mine, mines that are trying to get up
2: running, for example. Well, Angelo, maybe we live in interesting times. (laughs) Uh, Angelo, uh, do you have time for one more question? Sure. Um, So we had a question from one of the clients. How long will it take for companies like Tesla and energy companies uh, to move production factories into North America?
1: Well, you know, a little bit what we said before, it it could take a very long time. Right. You have to. You know, you're, when you're talking production, how like it's not just if you're, you're talking about the assembling of the components, right? But if you look at the, the local content requirements, they want the mining, right? And I can I have a report I wrote about a year and a half ago showing how long it takes getting mines approved, right? And then you have to the refineries. Not a lot of people like refineries in their backyard either. You got to get the approval for that, right? And so they're, they're, this this is this is a years and years long process. And as I mentioned, the International Agency Agency, which is a very pro-transition organization. They said that the average year of getting mine up and running in the world for copper in the last last 15 years or so is 16 years so it's a challenge right it'll be it, it's going to be a challenge and that's why it throws latin america in, in such an important position but the, the challenge for latin america from america's perspective is that when you exclude mexico latin america trades much more with china than it does with the united states so they have a great big geopolitical footprint there in this region, what's going to become increasingly important, given that they have the, re- the production that that is needed for the green energy transition in terms of mines. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. Well, Angelo, thank you so much for your time and thanks everyone for joining in. Uh, hopefully you found this of interest. And Angelo, I'm sure we're going to have a uh, request to have you back again. Um, as a reminder, everyone, we have recorded the session. We will send it out to you all in case you, you couldn't make the whole event also uh please remember we do have our podcast we are posted on youtube as well we um had one we posted out yesterday uh just giving you an overview of the market and and things we can do in this environment and as always any questions feel free to reach out to any one of us and happy to connect thanks again thanks everyone